This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Namaste, motherfuckers. Welcome to Namaste, motherfuckers, the only podcast where the worlds of work, comedy, and well-being collide. The podcast where we set out to uncover the good stuff, especially when the world isn't feeling so good. I'm your host, Callie Beaton, and this episode is called Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. And if you haven't already, please do remember to rate, review and recommend the podcast. We love it when you give us those shiny stars, ideally five of them. But back to today's show, which is all about lying. So here are some lying words for you. They're actual words. I'm not lying about them. A mythomaniac is a compulsive liar. And a taradiddle is a petty lie. I think there's something um, in drums called a paradiddle. My dad would know that. He's a timpanist. Um, and here are a couple of 19th century words for you. An abidocomist, which I'm sure I'm saying incorrectly, A-B-Y-D-O-C-O-M-I-S-T. An abidocomist is a liar who brags about their lies. Doesn't that just make them a shit liar? And a rawback, R-O-O-R, a rawback is a lie told for political effect. So I guess you could put that, for example, in a sentence like, the Tories are a bunch of fucking rawbackers. For over a hundred years, the Bridge Inn in Cumbria has held a world's biggest liar competition and politicians and lawyers are forbidden from entering because they are professionals. Recent research suggests that you um and er more when you're telling the truth as opposed to lying. And the inventor of the lie detector test was also the creator of Wonder Woman. Yeah, I'm in an office today. Um, I'd love to switch on the beach settings in Zoom. That's my guest today, Kathleen Wyatt. The famous quote, a lie can travel halfway around the world or the truth is putting on its shoes, has been attributed to Mark Twain, Winston Churchill, Thomas Jefferson, and no doubt a few other people along the way. But it is most likely thought to be a twist on a Jonathan Swift line, which goes like this, falsehood flies and truth comes limping after it. So a bit of lying trivia for you before we get into the episode. People lie more convincingly when they really need a wee, which means menopausal women must be lying very convincingly a lot of the time. The average Briton lies about how they really feel 11 times a week. People are less likely to be lying if they're swearing. Toddlers who tell lies early on in their lives are likely to do well later in life. And children under four don't tend to lie because they're convinced that grown-ups can read their minds. 
And finally, because the nose, like other body parts, contains erectile tissue, it actually grows when we lie. That's right, we've just yeah. got a puppy. Uh, we've just taken her up to London for the first time and she's freaking out, she really doesn't like it. Kathleen Wyatt is an acclaimed journalist, writer, and author of the brilliant book recently out, The Social Superpower, The Big Truth About Little Lies. As it says on the book cover, She's lived twice. You'll have to listen to the whole episode or read her book or preferably both to unpack that. She has lived, yes, twice and speaks six languages. Kathleen and I talked about lying, dying, drugs, love, neuroplasticity, linguistics, spies, double agents, travel, journalism, coming out, growing up, getting uncomfortable and Al-Qaeda. But as the fellow owner of a 10-week-old puppy, uh, Kathleen and I both had 10-week-old puppies when we recorded this a couple of weeks ago. They are now 12 weeks old, because that's how time works. I started by asking her what her little puppy is called. My puppy's called Jeff. Have I mentioned that I've got a puppy called Jeff? Teddy. Teddy. She's a girl, but she's called Teddy. Oh, that's so cool. Well, it's also <laughs> so cool to have you on the podcast because I loved, I would have found your book, The Social Superpower. It would have, you've had some great publicity for it and rightly so. And also I would have definitely come across it in a bookshop and gone, oh my God, this looks amazing. But it was a real treat to hear about it uh, through your publisher before. So I felt like I got a sort of, well, I did get a sneak peek of it and loved reading it. So do you want to tell listeners a bit about the premise of the book to start with? Yeah, sure. A, um, what fascinated me was, um, well, first of all, something that's very well documented, which is the power of lies. Um, and what's especially well documented, and for good reasons, is the power of lies to do bad, to cause chaos and carnage and all of that. But through a few big experiences in my life, I also kind of kept seeing their power to do good and particularly the smaller lies we tell and how powerful they can be and how much good they can do. Um, so it's a, it's quite a controversial area and it's quite difficult to sort of, uh, you know, mark out exactly what I'm looking at. But ultimately, yeah, it's, it's the power of those little lies to do good as well as do good as do bad. It's interesting when you think about turning a sort of generalized concept on its head like that I know when I did my show Invisible the year I turned 50 and part of the premise of that show it was all based on that French guy's quote you know when he said women at 50 were invisible Yann Moi um, he said that I think it was 2019 he said it but actually when I came to start doing the show I thought no being invisibility is a real being invisible is a real superpower as well because you slip in under the radar and you and you can absolutely, you know, if I'm doing an after dinner speech and someone sees me sitting there and they're like, oh, you're a sort of middle-aged woman, I have barely even looked at you, then the, the capacity to impress on that yeah. on that erroneous assumption is really, and, and I was really interested with your book because I thought there's, there's something not dissimilar there in that you're taking something that we instantly think is bad, we're told it's bad to lie, and you're looking at it in a much more nuanced way. And I guess it, it, without giving too much away, you'll decide how much of the book you want to give away and how much you want people to go and, and buy it, Hopefully um, they will do after listening to this. But the jumping off point for the book is brilliant and it's very personal. So, so do you want to sort of say as much as you're willing to about that kind of first chapter? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, in a way, that that was my most complicated lie. Uh, and it wasn't always the beginning of the book, but I realized that's the one that really got me thinking about the power of these little lies and, um, and how they can do good. Um, so rewinding a little bit, uh, when I was 20, um, I had a cardiac arrest. Um, and I was incredibly lucky and I was saved by an off-duty paramedic. Um, three months earlier, we'd moved to be within 10 minutes drive of uh, the enormous local hospital, Adenbrooks, uh, so this was in Cambridge. Um, and those factors combined to save my life. Um, my heart stopped for about 10 minutes. Uh, they managed to restart it in the hospital. Um, and I was in a coma for three days um, and then I had memory loss. Um, so while all this was happening, I had no idea of um, what I, you know, I essentially was putting my family and friends through. And um, my friends have since told me that they had these sort of agonizing moments um, in the hospital where they were having these heated debates about whether or not to tell the doctors that uh, 10 days before I'd been to a New Year's Eve party with them and I'd taken class A drugs. Um, so this was an, a potentially unexplained thing next to a very big unexplained thing. Um, and they decided they had to tell the doctors just in case that could be the cause. But what they really debated was whether or not they should tell my parents, because as you can imagine, my parents were super stressed and they didn't want to add a kind of extra dimension to it and something else to stress about. So they made this decision not to tell them, and they also asked the doctors not to tell them. And because I was over 18, um, they could do this. So what was um, essentially a really kind lie from my friends then became a kind of professional lie from the doctors. Um, and, and what was really interesting about it is that it wasn't really my lie in the first place. But fast forward six weeks, I was getting a bit better. I was still in hospital. My memory was sort of coming back. Um, and my parents uh, were asking one of the senior doctors, a doctor, what could possibly have caused this? And uh, without realizing, he said, well, there is the drugs incident to think about. And you've never seen anyone snap out of a codeine haze so fast. I just thought, <laughs> oh my God. This is what my my friends and everyone have been trying to tell me for six weeks, you know, this big thing. And it just hadn't dawned on me. Um, and that was the moment when I suddenly understood that there could be more than one version of events, more than one story. That, you and know, was it could be thoughts, me. That, was it, sorry, I cut you off there, Kathleen. What were you going to say? No, I just, sorry. I, I just realized that it could be me that had caused all of the, all of their pain and, you know, the fact that they'd spent so much time in the hospital with me. And did you, because there's a kind of humorous side, although it's not funny to think of someone sort of, you know, not, you know, his heart stopping and, and then being in this sort of terrible kind of state in a coma. But the thought of someone snapping out of that state in shock because of a combat, it's a sort of sitcom moment, right? In, you know, Fleabag or whatever, you can just see how that scene would play out. And was the, I'm comparing you to Phoebe Waller Bridge, which I think is a nice thing. You can have that. I love that. <laughs> Thank you very much. And um, was it what shocked you? Was it, was it, oh, my God, this is a thing that's been going on around me. This might be connected. Or was it, oh, what are my parents going to say? Like, what was going through your 20-year-old sort of, you know, just recovering brain at that point? Everything. Everything <laughs> at the same time. I, I literally, I couldn't, I sort of, I think I'd grasped this, this notion that I was in the hospital. I couldn't really understand the reason, but everyone was there and we're, you know, we were sort of doing the recovery together. 
Um, but I really couldn't understand why. And so the realization that it could have been me that caused it, that there was this kind of deception involved, that you know, my parents had suddenly realized them, realized it, and just the look on their faces, all of it together was just you could sum them sum it up in one word it was horror <laughs> just the sheer horror of it and it is it is funny looking back on it it was just you know an insane it was almost a sort of faulty towers moment yeah and, uh, yeah the, the doctor really <laughs> uh, put his foot in it and it's, it's, it's interesting the whole idea of neuroplasticity um if i could even say it correctly neuroplasticity this is how we speak as you know we have 10 week old puppies and we haven't actually had a night's sleep in two weeks but um that, that i find that such an interesting concept that we used to think that memory was in a sort of filing cabinet and you put things in there and it stayed where it was and that now we know that our versions of events and you cover that really interestingly in a couple of ways in in the book and i'll leave you to talk about them rather than me parroting back your book to you but the idea then that we tell ourselves it's interesting what bit of that you would have decided to retain so whether you would have at any point gone do you know what I think that is connected to what I did on New Year's Eve or it could be or whether you would sort of self-edit and go oh, do you know poor me that was out of the blue because we we choose our version of our own life events don't we and I guess you were forced to get to a sort of you know chapter end and, and then a bit of a rewrite happened. Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I don't know if I was really doing any writing at all in those six weeks in terms of, you know, understanding Mentally. the story. Yeah. Um, it was still all sort of coalescing. It, it was, yeah, it's a really weird time. And it is quite a strange thing to try and remember. So I'm basically, I'm, I'm using all the stories my friends and family have told me since. Um, and I, I suppose I'm, I'm quite pragmatic about it. Um, the simple answer is we don't really know. But you know, on the one hand, there's this massively, you know, this massive unexplained thing. And on the other, they could find no trace of drugs in my system, no evidence of damage to my heart, other than when I collapsed. Um, so I'll never know. And my, uh, you know, my mother, I talked to her about it recently. And she said, A, did she ever blame my friends for lying? No, she thought they were amazing. And she completely understood why they did. Um, and B, we'll never know the reason but perhaps it could have been helped a little bit by the drugs. So, And two questions spring to mind. One is, are we allowed to ask what class A it was? <laughs> That's amazing. I love it. Um, when I wrote the chapter, when I was thinking of putting it first, I just kept having this sort of sense of shame. And in fact, one of the questions I get asked most often is, what kind of drugs were they? <laughs> Me and my unoriginal questioning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think it was uh, speed, uh, as we called it then, so amphetamines and ecstasy. Um, well, that's quite so. a cocktail. So uh, kids, yeah. if you're listening to this, and actually ecstasy, I've had this discussion with my 20-something uh, children, uh, that it was, and this is not probably the conversation I should be having with them, but basically MDMA now is so much safer than ecstasy was then, because when you were doing that, you know, it was very new, wasn't it? So like, you know, it, it, only, it only pretty much just come into the come into circulation probably that year or the year before says me semi-expert on it but um and it was but it what you and now it is a little bit um, I know things awful things happen but it was a kind of brand new drug really so I guess at the time on top of everything else it wasn't even a recreational drug people knew much about yeah exactly and you know I say I think it was that because who knows it was a pill and some powder <laughs> yeah it could have been anything Ajax as a um, really yeah contemporary reference and the other question <laughs> now that we've straightened out what the drugs were um yeah, I sound like Nancy Reagan but the other question is so if you don't know for sure and you don't know why that happened if I put myself in your shoes I would be sort of the rest of my life thinking well could that just happen again then so 
Is there a part of you that wishes you did know it was because of that or because of something so you know you're not at risk of it again? Um, not until I asked that think... question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was totally fine. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think I, I know how lucky I was to have survived it. So for me, I kind of I know all of this is extra time. You know, in, in as, how many people know they've they've had extra time? It's quite an amazing sort of concept. So that that kind of keeps me calm. And I know that I could get hit by that white van, or that the asteroid could suddenly you know hit the planet, or whatever it is, and or you know, my heart could stop again. Um, the doctors think I have the same level of risk as everyone else of that ever happening again. Um, and in the end, um, I, I had um, a defibrillator. So the, the famous defibrillators of casualty. I've never uh, seen one of, one of those used. I just see them in the, you know, in the casing at the tube station. I think I've never seen one in action. So you don't yeah. remember any of that, presumably, because they'll point us by the time you're being defibrillated. You're not really thinking about that. Yeah, <laughs> although they, uh, so I had a, an implantable one um, and it's an amazing technology. Are those things that they, start your, they start your heart if your heart stops at any point? Is that, yes, I've got a friend right. who's yes. got that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so they did test it on me once, so I do know what it feels like to be defibrillated. And what and, does it uh, feel like? Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's it, like sticking your fingers in a socket. It's oh, incredible. is it? It's not like an orgasm. Yeah. No, it's not like an electric shock. <laughs> yeah and at least it... I pretended it wasn't <laughs> okay yeah you just keep it so you can't set it off yourself like it will only happen if there's a short circuit is that right that's right yeah. so you've still you're still are defibrillated so you've got your backup mechanism uh no uh because uh it was amazing technology but the batteries were crap so in the end I ended up having five different devices over 15 years um and by the fifth device I just wasn't recovering from this sort of massive surgery for a thing that you know, I never needed it. Never, wow. my heart never stopped again. So the doctors said, "What would you think about taking it out altogether?" I was like, "Yes, do it. Take it out." So I thought I'm 100% it was human again. Uh, I thought it was only Apple um, that made iPhones with built-in obsolescence. It doesn't make sense to build in a defibrillator with really shit battery life, does it? Got to go back to the store <laughs> to get a new one. That's totally. So you had up. So you had 15 years of backup, and now you're out there, 100% human, no supersonic properties that we know of. But yeah. with a superpower of understanding a lot more about lying than most of us do. And I want to, you talk about um, uh, two big lies that bookend the book and we'll come to the, onto the second lie. Um, but you say at the start of the book, or, or I, I can't it's in the book, or I heard it, you've been described in this way. Um, I think you did lived twice, speaks six languages. So that's quite, you know, that's quite something on the, on the corporate speaking circuit, which I'm on, Kathleen. With those, you'd be, you know, booked to high heaven. So we know about the lived <laughs> twice, speaking six languages. For a Brit, speaking two languages, as I do, is amazing. Very proud of myself. So how on earth do you speak six and what are they? Uh, because I'm a filthy cheat. Uh, my mother is half French, half Italian, so was sort of babbling away at me at, at an early age. Um, and my exes, one was Chilean, one was Brazilian. Uh, so that gave me Spanish and Portuguese. And I studied German. So I, th I think that makes six. But, yeah. you know, they're quite rusty. I, Don't worry, <laughs> I won't test of... you because I can't. <laughs> Schoolgirl French, <laughs> bonjour, ça va. That's me done. Um, and is it, you, so, so your mum was an air hostess, a French and Italian, and she met your dad in Beirut, I read. Is that what, right. So what was your, your dad um, was English-Irish, but was living in Beirut? Um, they were they were both working in Beirut, so she'd just flown to Beirut, and he was doing some business there. 
uh, and I think they were introduced by mutual friends and had that painful oh, coffee. In the yeah. pre-app days when people were introduced by mutual friends. Yes, exactly. And then did they have you, where, where were you born then? Ah, I was born in Welling Garden City in Hertfordshire, so not Trade as glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not quite the Paris of the Middle East. Um, but yeah, they, they, they came back over here. So that's where I was born. And then we lived in Nigeria for a couple of years and then Luxembourg for a couple of years, traveling around with, uh, with my dad's job uh, and then sort of came back to the UK for a good yeah basically for the, the rest of time because <laughs> you're very clearly I mean obviously you're a writer um journalist and 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 now you know writer a book writer but you clearly are a, a wordsmith that's your thing you know languages writing was that was that always something that you because I just massively admire as anyone who listens to this will know anyone who writes for a living that's the thing I find the hardest about what I do for a living is the writing bit so I'm always in awe of people who actually can, can write in that way because you worked at the Times for 16 years yeah that's right and that yeah. was on the arts and then the travel section both of which would figure given your kind of yeah your life to date but that's so that as a kind of job that was the sort of thing I sort of dreamt of doing when I was a student in English but never managed to do it so how did you get into doing kind of that sort of thing um, in, into the Times or into yeah, travel Yeah, well, journalism. into travel journalism and also into the Times, yeah. Into the Times uh, work experience and a lot of faxing and photocopying, which instantly ages me or instantly, uh, yeah. Did you telex? I used to have to use the telex machine in my first job in television, so there you are. That's definitely aged me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just, just persistence in terms of getting in there. Eventually, I remember, I don't know, after about three weeks, they gave me a little film review. I think basically they wanted me to just bugger off and do something else other than making coffee and, and faxing. And was that straight um, out of uni you got into that or was there a sort of yeah. intervening? Yeah. OK, so you and in those days, you sort of because I think you and I are probably a similar age. And you sort of literally had to just apply, didn't you, through like uh, things you saw in the newspaper or just find someone to write to or it, was, it wasn't sort of very yeah. easy finding ways to apply, was it? I don't know. I think it's easier than today because now to get into journalism, it's impossible. And I've got mm. friends who are asking me for that, you know, their children, how do you do it? How, you, how do you get in? And it's, it's really, it's really hard. Whereas I knew someone who worked at the Times and he introduced me to someone and then, yeah, I wrote loads of letters and uh, eventually I got in on this uh, work experience. Um, yeah. And then, and then I just, I stayed and I worked around the different sections and uh, I spent five years on news uh, in the engine room of the paper. And I absolutely, loved it but I didn't really love working nights um, so when the travel job came up I pounced and uh, yeah I had two and a half years in the sunshine and that was just fabulous. So literally getting sent to try sort of yeah just getting sent all around the place depending what the story was. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it was incredible. Um, I can't, <laughs> I look back at it, it, it ruined me for life because then afterwards I bet. I'd be turning Dream up job. at hotel, yeah. you know, having to pay, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, it was incredible. So uh, yeah, I did that for a couple of years and then, and then went back to sort of uh, digital projects and things. So um, yeah, exciting career-wise, but less sunshine. I did. I don't know if it's the same for you, but in the years when I was staying in places like that, also on someone else's dollar, you know, when I had a sort of corporate proper job, 
but I always felt a bit of an outsider. I never really, like if I'd be staying at some amazing sort of, you know, six star resort, I never really felt like I should be there. I, I didn't, I was quite happy to be there, but I never really thought this is me. I thought I'm definitely an interloper and all these people look like they're meant to be. Same as if I ever definitely. sat in the front of the plane, I'd be like, I really don't think someone's going to find me out. <laughs> so excuse me, could you go and sit back by the toilets? But did you feel like you were borrowing someone's life or did it feel like, you know, no, oh, this definitely. is where I'm meant to be? Yeah, no, definitely. I felt I felt like one of those kids looking in through the window at the, you know, the beautiful restaurants, and I just kind of pressed my face <laughs> enough, and I felt, yeah, I'm doing this too. Um, no, I had complete imposter syndrome, um, and it, and I, I loved it. I loved being dropped in and seeing other people's lives like that. Um, but uh, but yeah, it took it took me a while to get used to the five star, six star, etc. And just, but you can spot a journalist a mile off just from our shoes. You'd see all these people in beautiful clothes with crap shoes and be like, ah, the journalist, it's a press trip. Of course, that's why they're here. Oh, well, that's a tip. There you go. I think we're done now. You can go. That's all we needed <laughs> was one life much. hack. Is, um, <laughs> did you have in those, I realised sort of right at the beginning of um, working at MTV, which was my first sort of job where I travelled a lot suddenly, and I realised how much you need to just relinquish control because things don't ever go as you think they will right when you're traveling so much and there are so many things that so many variables and I remember on my very first trip for MTV and I think I've talked about it in the podcast before so I won't bore on about it but one thing after another after another went wrong and I ended up literally sort of in about five different destinations none of which were meant to be on my itinerary because one thing affected another affected another and I was trying to sort of catch up with myself and and there were it was a real um I was 24 Four, I think at the time that all started to happen oh. and it was a real kind of growing up thing for me a sort of like realizing where you get out in the world and you can't control it and you can't live in your comfort zone the whole time and I think it probably was sort of what made me grow up traveling and experiencing those things kind of on my own in a way how how old were you and how was it for you? Um, I think I was in my early 30s and I think I, I don't know just having been on the paper for so long it didn't feel like real journalism because you know you have war correspondents jetting off to you know god knows where and there was me testing in an infinity pool in Italy um so I think you know I I, I learned more from my year out um after a levels when I really was traveling on my own and it, it's kind of you can't even imagine it these days but you know pre-mobile phones I just had a rucksack and I was interrailing um just around Europe but I remember you know having a, a stack of coins and I'd call my parents sort of every three weeks or something I mean you know how would that work in today's world um and that's definitely when I learned yeah I learned a bit more sort of street smarts and you know how to handle um you know trickier situations and uh, and all that kind of thing but yeah travel journalism taught, taught me to uh yeah enjoy the finer take things take the free in life shit while it's on offer <laughs> definitely no, <laughs> you put it much better than me yeah. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by snapple Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now, open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. I used to look at people who did what you did when you did it. So people who did either take a gap year before uni or travel right afterwards and did exactly what you described, of course, also at the same age as you, sort of without the capacity for any sort of contact. I know when I moved to Amsterdam, 
in my early 20s. And we didn't have any money to fly back to the UK. There weren't budget flights. There weren't cheap phone calls. There wasn't email. And I tried to explain to people, now, you know, my kids sort of hop around the world. and it, But it wasn't like, it, it, you literally might as well have been in Alaska. Yes, it was Amsterdam, but we couldn't come home and we couldn't communicate with people very easily. And it was very different. And I found that a hell of a shock moving there. But I just never had the... I don't think I was resilient or resourceful enough as a young woman to have begun to be able to do what you did. And I always look at people who did it and think, what a missed opportunity, because then life gets in the way and you can't ever go around for that year. But did you, the what you went through, your sort of near-death experience not, not long before that, did that have an impact on you sort of having more of a, I'm just going to bloody get out and do it? Or was it not connected? I was thinking about this because I was thinking about your epiphany question that I know you ask at the end of the podcast. Um, And you'd think that would be my epiphany, but dying and coming back to life. But actually, I think I really just tried to get my old life back. That was my instinct was to try and piece it all back together, understand how everything worked. So in fact, instead of jacking it all in and, and going off to India and doing something noble, and now I just carried on with my kind of student life and the next steps and all, all of that. So actually, um, I, I went uh, traveling and interrailing and all that before my heart thing. And I think that's before, yeah, was it? Yeah, so I, I think that was the really that was the time of taking risks and really, you know, learning learning stuff as you go. Um, and I guess I suppose I've become more cautious. I mean, definitely with age, but also after the heart thing, I, I definitely. Um, but I did have an incredible moment when uh, they took out the defibrillator when the nurse said to me, "Oh, your insurance is going to be so much cheaper now." And I looked at her. And I just thought. Jesus Christ, was I meant to mention this to the insurance company? <laughs> <laughs> it's like not mentioning points on your license. Only possibly something more serious. <laughs> I just thought I saved an absolute fortune. I didn't even know it. But yeah, thank God it never went off. Yeah, and the no claims you built up in all those years of unused defibrillation. And did um, in in the travel years, was there any, did anything, did you have any kind of stories that stand out from those years when you were traveling for the times and going to sort of unexpected places? um yeah I mean yeah loads um but I yeah uh, Galapagos are they all gonna make incredible. you sound Galapagos yeah they're gonna make me sound like a total like a total asshole. privileged wanker but that's fine we yes. can have a privileged yeah. wank off about our lucky times when other people pay us say so, god that must have been amazing wasn't it yeah that was incredible it yeah it really was um and it was this kind of uh weird little cruise ship full of uh, people who'd spent their whole life saving up for this. And that's when I felt really, you know, not just like an, an imposter. Yeah. I suppose an interloper, you know, I was there kind of, but I got to do, it felt more like real journalism because it was fascinating. You know, each Island told its own story and literally started explaining evolution to me, which is quite a feat for my sort of, you know, travel adult brain. Um, So yeah, that was, that was really incredible. Um, And there's another one that is my epiphany. So I might save it. You save that. And, and is it when, when you're doing that again, for somebody like me who gets a bit panicky about writing and about deadlines, all of that would be slightly marred by the fact that I know I've got to come up with a decent piece of writing. What's the sort of turnaround? So when you are a travel journalist, um, are you are you sort of having to be pretty much sorting out copy while you're there? Or do you have like, is it totally interfering with the fun you could have while you're traveling? <laughs> um, no, I, I guess it's always in your mind that you do have to, yeah, you have to keep going, keep taking notes and, and doing all of that. But no, I'd, I'd come from those daily deadlines of news to a lovely weekly deadline. Um, so I, you know, I had time to get back and, and actually think about it and then write it. So um, no, no, that was fine. I just kind 
come back with this, you know, massive kind of encyclopedia of notes that I'd have to decipher that I'd written when I was drinking my lovely cock, you know, sundown <laughs> knife <laughs> alcohol. And is it, I've, I've interviewed a couple of, um, a few people who've written books, but a couple of people who, like you, have a sort of journalist and have gone on to write books, Helen Russell, Louisa Young. And they, when I talk about the process of writing or how daunting it is for some people to write a book, I, I know it's definitely not easy for anyone to write a book and it's something to be massively admired. But this is your first book, is it The Social Superpower? Have you written? Yeah, well, yeah. There's, a, there's a terrible novel in a drawer somewhere and it's going to stay there. Okay, so that hasn't been published? <laughs> no. And hasn't even been shown to the puppy? <laughs> no, indeed. <laughs> okay. not the puppy ready. will find a use for that um, if you decide that's the best thing for it. <laughs> um, so, so it's your first book. And is I'm just interested, and again, it may be a really naive question to ask given you write for a living, but is is it daunting when you sort of know right someone's interested I've actually got to produce a full book now it's 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 a very it must be quite a different kind of thing to master as compared to articles um well I, I've been go- I left the times in 2016 and I left to, to finish the book and I thought I had a you know um I thought I had an exciting deal waiting for me uh didn't quite work out like that um Trump and uh, fake news and everything else that was happening at the time blew out any other possible books about lying, even if it was a different kind of lie. Really? Because so that's I, what I, I thought. You'd, you'd think that it was a really, really, I guess it's not as sensationalist an angle as some of the things that were going on at the point at which all exactly. of that started to happen. Yeah. So yours is a really thorough, nuanced look at the subject in a way that's very kind of interesting and relatable, but it wasn't sensational. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you you know, how that compete with fake news and alternative truths and all of that. Um, so basically, I, I kind of, um, you know, went off, did different pieces of work and just carried on chipping away at the book over time. So it wasn't ever as if I sort of, you know, started off with a blank page and knew, Jesus Christ, I've got to write 80,000 words. I'd sort of written a lot of them and it was just a question of organising them. And then, yeah, I ended up with this amazing publisher and they loved the book. So that was such a new experience after, you know, all the other publishers being kind of "Mm, not sure, not sure. Um, So, no, there there wasn't that moment of... uh, you know, of the horror of a blank page or anything like that. But of course, there were loads of moments where I was like, Jesus Christ, people are going to be reading my book and it's got personal bits and ah. Is it, I remember, um, I think it was Sarah Pascoe saying to me that she always kind of um, feels a bit like after she's done a gig, she always feels a bit kind of exposed. And I think it was her mum yeah. who said to her, yeah, but it's like you've just got up on stage and kind of pulled your pants down, isn't it? It's a very vulnerable kind of thing to do. Not that she literally pulls her pants down. But in terms of the, um, and actually I interviewed Laura Lex's episode of the podcast out the week you and I are recording this, and she's just written her first kind of full from scratch novel that she, she um, you know, she, she had it sort of extended blogs that she's published before. And she said, as a comedian, it's really scary because we road test our material as we go. So we write oh. things, we try it, we know what an audience thinks. And by the time it becomes our Edinburgh show, we'll have done it about 40 <sighs> times in different ways. And she said, it's so weird that if you and your publisher think it's all right, it goes out there and it's always out there. You can't unwrite it or rewrite it. And that, that for me, would be quite scary as a comic. In the book, again, I, I love the way in which you managed to, it's very much your story and, and your opinions, but really beautifully crafted in terms of the people you met and talked to and, and what you gleaned from those conversations. And 
you know, scientists, spies, Nobel Prize winners. It's, it's quite a kind of interesting roll call of people you managed to get to interview. I guess one of the bits I found most fascinating was the kind of whole spy double agent sort of getting into that world and even managing to find people to speak to. Um, and I think that's some of the earlier parts of your conversations, right, about sort of uncovering what it is to be a liar. And one of the, yeah. I think one of the spies you spoke to said, I'm a really bad, I'm a really bad liar. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So bad at those daily little lies, but very good at the bigger lies. Yeah. And what are the things? Because there are so many, so many interesting conversations in, in there and so many interesting kind of case studies. And I know the ones that sort of stood out to me, but what, what are the ones that stood out to you the most and that really resonated when you heard them? Um, I, I think the Al-Qaeda double agent, uh, Eamon Dean, really um, you know, really made an impression on me. I was quite nervous when I was talking to him. Um, he'd he'd identified himself, and so people knew about him. But he was still quite hard to get hold of when I spoke to him. Um, so I just had snippets. And um, what's well, I was going to say strange, but what what's really unexpected was that actually, as it came closer to the um, anniversary of the uh, 9/11 attacks, he started speaking publicly more and more. Now, this man has a fatwa on him, you know, Al Qaeda after him, but there he was in public doing podcasts and interviews, and he wrote a book about his time in Al Qaeda. It's incredible. And um, the more I sort of read into that, the more I realized how much, you know, what an incredible liar he was. And um, when I spoke to him, I thought he was a recruiter for Al Qaeda and then was turned and, and spied for the um, for MI6 and MI5. Um, but it turns out, as he says in his book, that he was actually a bomb maker. So when I found that out, I just, you know, it's, it's just chilling. You just think, Jesus Christ, who is this man that I spoke to? So, yeah, he, he made a real impression on me, uh, probably for the wrong reasons. Um, and then uh, on the other end of the spectrum is uh, Maria Ressa, mm. so the, the Nobel Peace Prize winning journalist. Um, and she's just incredible. I mean, wow, what a human. Um, when you meet her, she's she's kind of she's small and she seems shy and she speaks quietly. Um, so you you start chatting to her and you think, oh yeah, she's she's interesting. And then you realise, you know, exactly what she's involved in in her life and the scale of what she's achieved. Um, so she runs uh, Rappler, this uh, news website, um, this very popular news website in the Philippines, um, and they've uh, butted up against um, President, the former President uh, Duterte, um, and what you can only really call a, a troll army. Um, and so she faced everything from death threats to rape threats to you know, public humiliation. Uh, she was arrested, I, I can't even remember how many times, and had at one point had more than 10 lawsuits against her. Yet she still keeps this hope that, um, you know, the world of social media can be regulated and can be policed so that people can differentiate between facts and, um, you know, gossip and, and, you know, not quite lies, but things that are uncertain in the way we used to with newspapers. So you'd think, oh, yes, I can trust this source of information. And I know that's true. And this I know is maybe more fun gossipy. Whereas now everything is one sort of amalgamated chat and you can't tell the difference. And that's where, you know, a white lie just gets amplified way beyond its kind of perhaps innocent beginnings it just you know totally snowballs and and we know about the destructive effects of it um so she's really caught in the middle of this sort of maelstrom um and she's still optimistic even you know after spending time in jail after yeah having just been chased around by this kind of 
incredible, yeah, in incredible force on the Duterte side. Um, so yeah, she was amazing. How do you think? I, I watched. Um, I can't. I should remember the name of it. The um, that incredible uh, film that depicted the story of that Guantanamo Bay guy that ended up um, befriending one of his uh, captors. I. I really should have, I'll, I'll put in the show notes the name of the of it and I'll remember and also put it in the intro but anyway I remember watching watching him and 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 being you know you know later befriending his captor but also the optimism and and, and forgiveness with which he lived his life yeah. and is there an element I was I'm really interested in how much compassion and forgiveness enables you to let go of things and live with them was that what yeah. do you put down the optimism to when you when you got to know her Exactly that. Exactly that. She said, um, you know, show me that I can't trust you until then I'll trust you. That's her sort of, you know, and it still is approach after all of that. Yes. Wow. Yes. After all of that. It's incredible. Um, you know, oh, my God, she's incredible. She seems so sort of physically frail. yet She's got this force. Um, and yeah, it, it is. She she cares. She cares about her team. She's, you know, her team is young. It's sort of half male, half female. They're, they're all kind of, you know, social media kind of riding on the backs of bikes and filming these terrifying drug gangs. Um, and she, yeah, they're a family to her. And, and they, they definitely see her as, you know, the heart of the family. Um, so, yeah, I think it is compassion that, that, that keeps that optimism alive. She believes in the human spirit. And that's quite amazing to hear it coming from her. And were there points when you were scared interviewing some of the people that you met in the course of doing the book? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Eamon Dean, I, yeah, he, he was chilling. He was chilling because he sounded so normal. And, um, you know, he'd be talking about kind of warfare and terrorism and sounding a bit like an accountant or something. It was, it was just incredible. And you think if this guy is not scared of Al-Qaeda <laughs> coming after him, then, you know, what could he do to someone who you know, inadvertently insults him in an interview or, you know, you, you start, you do start getting quite paranoid. And um, my other um, spy, although he didn't like me calling him a spy, uh, and you know, you I you wouldn't. And then <laughs> so yes, you lied to him. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> my trusted source. Um, you know, e even then there were moments when I thought, you know, am I being watched? Is it? And, and this is just me being, you know, a crap journalist and being paranoid. I'm sure, you know, all those war correspondents would, wouldn't give it a second thought. But, I, you know, as a former travel journalist, I was definitely thinking, oh, this is dangerous territory. Um, you know, and people who specialize in surveillance. And there I am with my, you know, my, my phones and all my other social media things that are open. So, yeah, there were definitely moments where I thought I wasn't sure about it. I have to say, reading the Al Qaeda guys, um, even your account of it, I mean, it, it, we're not, it's not fair for me to go diagnosing someone who I did, but there seemed to be sort of multiple personalities. And he really did seem to be able to, he just seemed to be full of shit a lot of the time. To use a technical, <laughs> that's what you could have called your book, full of shit. Um, but it's. <laughs> Hopefully, it doesn't do what it says on the tin. Yeah. <laughs> I'm back to the puppies again. But there's. Um, but I did. Uh, that's that really was so clear. Just hearing, reading his accounts, knowing a bit about the story anyway, because it was so high profile, and then reading your accounts of what it's like. His he he was shape shifting before your eyes, and you're the one talking to him about lying. 
Yeah, absolutely. No, it was incredible. I, I wouldn't use those words about him because I still think, ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it was just, you know, and his ability to hold all these different lies in his mind. And, and, to, and to live undercover in that way, because you hear about these yeah. undercover, um, well, you probably have a view about it, you know, these undercover police who end up having yeah. relationships and children. And I know there's been a whole load of lawsuits in recent years about that. Um, but you do end up having to, having to sort of assimilate. It's very hard to say, I really went undercover, but I always was just the person on the outside of the thing I was sent in to infiltrate because at yeah. a certain point as human beings, it's a tribal instinct to fit in and we genuinely can't help ourselves, but try to adapt internally as well as externally. Yeah, definitely. And also you wouldn't be a very good undercover agent if, if you were manifestly on the outside of something, you know, the best ones definitely put themselves right at the heart of it. Um, yeah. And I did, I did wonder about interviewing, uh, you know, someone who'd, who'd been involved in that, that kind of total overlap, you know, when your, your life is a lie, but then it impacts so many people because as far as I could tell, my sort of intelligence source, you remain distance distant from from the things that he did um you know i don't i don't know that for sure um but yeah i think that's that's really a gray area it's very sort of marshy territory and you know strangely for having written a book about lying i prize honesty more than anything so that kind of lie where you're really using your power you know over people and you, you're you're really benefiting it from it that to me that really goes into a, a gray area and are dark, you a good liar? Um, I'm, I'm good at the uh, little social ones, the ones that I feel, you know, will I make someone feel more comfortable? Am I saving them from, you know, kind of light level pain? Or do I have to keep a family secret to stop everyone from falling out? And those, uh, you know, I, I don't have any, any problem with in a sense. So uh, I think I'm okay at those. Uh, but when I, when I, yeah, if I get caught in a bigger lie, I can't bear it. So I'm right. rubbish. Um, so yeah, someone to, you know, asked me to keep their secrets and it was something that I found difficult. And so the lie was just written all over my face yeah. when someone else asked me about it. So yeah, don't trust me with your big lies. Okay. Well, that's a relief. <laughs> I think that, I think that's a good testament to you as a person. And I mentioned, uh, when we first started talking about the book that you bookend it with these two lies, you need, you start with this first lie even that wasn't your lie but this incredible sort of near-death experience and then you you sort of throw forward to the fact that you're going to say what the second lie was um and again I don't know how much of that you're happy to talk about in terms of people still reading the book but um <laughs> but it's yeah I I had a bit of a um a kind of spoiler on that given that I know you through a couple of people so I knew what it might be but yes do you want do you want to tell people what the what the second one is Yes, absolutely. And it's not really a spoiler because it's not so much the lie itself, more all, all the, you know, everything that was it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I can tell you it in, in, in uh, three words. I am gay. That was it. That was my, uh, my second lie revolved around not telling people that. Um, and um, well, a lie about sexuality or a lie about identity is, is a massive, massive lie. But really, it's sort of made up of all these little lies day in, day out. And I think, you know, ultimately, that's what wore away at me, just this yeah this need to lie all the time this need to remember not to tell people certain things and um you know i just found that i was so basically i told my my friends and family over time uh, but i just couldn't come out at work uh, and this was when i was in the newspaper you know working in london in the 21st century i mean god what was wrong with me but i just couldn't and i i think it was probably shame you know i just i just i didn't want a fuss made about me i just wanted to sort of 
this was in, in the 90s, was it? Uh, no, this was in the noughties. Noughties. But actually, I don't think you can underestimate um, if you talk to lots and lots of, um, you know, of, of gay women our age, I don't think I don't think it was I don't think people realize actually how much it was still very complicated and I think it's fair yeah. to say it was much more complicated for women um still so I think it, it I'm not I'm not underestimating the challenges um that gay men have experienced and do still but it really was was a, it took a really long time to be okay to come out of the closet as a woman I think I, I do think it was a real it was still a challenge in the noughties even though that might sound really hard to believe for people yeah, it's true, actually. And it wasn't as if you could turn on, you know, a television program as you can now and find, you know, cool, successful lesbians leading a show and it not being a thing that they're gay. Um, yeah, so, so uh, that's true. But still, I just I got to this point where I thought, you know, if I can't find a way to talk about this and my job is writing, then, you know, what hope does someone who's sort of stuck in, you know, some remote village or, you know, outside the UK where they could be persecuted for being gay? You know, I felt, you know, enough's enough. I've got to just try and, and uh, come out of the bloody closet at work. Uh, and the only way I, I could do that was to write about it. So I started writing this um, uh, this column uh, and it closet was meant to case. be a couple of And it was anonymous, case. wasn't it? I love the fact you went sh shit or bust. You went from no one's going to know to everyone's going to know. <laughs> via a yeah. column in a broadsheet so that's a good sort of extreme way to live <laughs> yeah and I, I really I think I thought well if I do it once I'll never have to do it again how wrong I was <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it sort of it worked for the times you know I didn't have to go around to oh by the way I'm gay you know it was just uh, people knew and I could now talk about my partner and it, and it was all fine um but yeah when, whenever I started a new job I'd suddenly find myself inching back into the closet just because I didn't want to tell them this personal thing about me or you know it's also the assumptions though it's really People do make, uh, nobody likes to be misunderstood. Nobody likes to be underestimated and nobody likes to have assumptions made about them. And I do think, you know, when people are saying, you know, have you got a boyfriend? Is your husband going to come along? Uh, what does your husband do? It's, it's, it's really hard to sort of have to, you know, the onus has got to be on everyone. They're like, why are we using that kind of heteronormative language around everything? And why just, and it still is, it still is a thing that people assume, just make assumptions. And so you have to correct something because the baseline has got so many preconceptions in it. So there's something also systemic. You were, I don't think you can be too hard on yourself um, as a sort of lone wolf failing to, to, to live by who you were but it is so you did it closet case um ran for um it ran for 15 weeks and after 15 years uh, you came out that's I think that's how you how you described it so were you always going to were you always going to write anonymously and then reveal or were you thinking you might just write anonymously was the whole the whole point was you going to do the reveal <laughs> yeah the whole point was the reveal and um when it was three weeks I thought I could kind of cope with that and I was thinking okay so I'll just do this in the first week and then I sort of mapped it out and it all felt like yeah yeah I can still do this I can still do this and when we decided it was going to last 15 you know by week 10 I was kind of going nuts I was just like oh and you know my the colleagues around me were beginning like I'd, I'd sort of um, I talked about searching my name on the internet to see if you know there was anything that came up about me being gay uh, so I'd, I'd just put how many letters there were in my name and so I could hear a colleague saying well it could be Martha Lane Fox or it could be, you know, it was really weird out of body experience. So it's sort of, you know, as it got closer and closer, I just thought, holy shit. And I could, I could by then I couldn't 
you know, I couldn't back out. Yeah. So <laughs> that would be a crap last column. <laughs> it would be really, really bad. Just kidding. And does it, I, I loved the idea. I think it was in regard to Eamon Dean, the Al-Qaeda double agent that you talked about, the idea of the loosening of a lie and that now you've gone through that yourself. You could see that in how he was behaving once he started to be able, almost that euphoric. Now I can talk about it and yeah. I'm out of that, that stranglehold of the lie. And now I almost can't stop talking about it. It's like, it's my thing. <laughs> and I really loved that phrase. I'd never thought of the phrase loosening of a lie um there's another we we won't um have time to go into these now but i loved the stuff you refer to about martha stewart and bill clinton as well um some really interesting stuff in the book about those but i shall leave that for people to read in the book um and is there in terms of and you've also got a lie graph which i loved so there's the kind of truth and effect kind of axes of the lie Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah it, it, again, back to my basic brain. I could only once I re- started looking at how many different lies there are. I just thought, wow, I've got to kind of map this out to get a sense of just how much we do this 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 weird behaviour and how all the lies relate to each other. So the only way I could do it was to literally draw a picture. Um, so that that was the lie graph. It was a kind of a box for truth, and then all the things that we do to the truth, um, which, which are uh, you know changing the truth in little ways or in big ways. Um, and I sort of compiled a list as I went of all our different words and terms for lying Uh, and I ended up with a list of 64 different words and terms for it so it's incredible it's this thing that we recognize and talk about you know that's so present in the way we interact but we don't admit how many little lies we ever tell because we can't because that you know the default assumption for society to work is that when we meet someone and interact with them they're telling us the truth I was going to ask you, as well as the three questions I ask everyone, Kathleen, I was just going to ask you, has your relationship with lying and the concept of lying changed as a result of writing the book? Yes, yes, it has. Um, Just in the sense that, um, so I think I always prized honesty as a quality in people. Um, But, um, you know, those little white lies, the kind lies, I think, you know, those are all absolutely fine for me. But uh, as I write more and more, have written more and more about it, um, I just am now very uncomfortable with uh, the sort of bigger lies that we sometimes find ourselves entangled in. And I literally, I feel them sort of physically. It's like they're sitting on me sort of badly. And uh, yeah, that, that's what makes me quite a bad liar when I have to cover up for someone else. Um, I think I, I anticipate someone seeing the lie on my face and then it becomes even more evident which makes me doubly crap I think so terrible poker player <laughs> yes indeed well I um I think even reading it actually it did make me it did really make me question my own lying and I think you say yeah. it in it and I did start I thought I don't really lie and then I realized those numerous little lies of oh I've just got to get back early for this or so sorry I couldn't attend that and those little <laughs> sort of social lies that we use but I'm sticking with them I, I am seeing them as a superpower and obviously yeah. like you I'm a generous altruistic liar and it's all for the common good so yeah luckily <laughs> you and I are perfect Namaste, motherfuckers. what would you Kathleen pick as your namaste motherfucking life-changing moments <laughs> um so yeah i said earlier my uh life-changing motherfucking namaste moment uh would probably be when i when i died and came back to life but because i can't remember much of it um the one 
uh, moment that really stayed with me and really had this sort of profound spiritual effect, which I thought was probably more fitting for the podcast, um, was when I was doing the uh, travel job um, and I got to go to Bhutan, which was incredible. It was absolutely amazing. Um, and it was a trip that sort of hung by a thread because we had to get visas and permission and everything else. And then the weather wasn't right for the flight and um, all of these things. But we finally got there on this tiny rickety little plane that kind of lands in this, um, you know, well, rickety airport, but with all these kind of amazing portraits of the king and this sort of sense of benevolence everywhere. It was incredible. Um, and uh, the guides took us to uh, two of the most amazing sites. One is the Tiger's Nest Monastery, um, which uh, actually Kate and William ended up going to as well. And that was incredible. Um, but the one that was a sort of epiphany or a namaste moment was um, in fact a nunnery that we went to see before that um, and it is also perched on a mountain so loads of vertigo but to get there you have to go through this really kind of tricky little path through all these kind of amazing rhododendron trees and on the day we went there was this massive rainstorm um, it was also quite high altitude. So by the time we got to the nunnery, I think we were all sort of pretty much high on <laughs> nature and exercise and, and fatigue and everything else. Um, but it turned out to be the day, one of their most sacred days of the year. Um, and we were led into this kind of, you know, the sacred, most sacred of all sacred rooms where the nuns were chanting and um, they were using this incredible um, horn uh, that just resonated throughout the nunnery. And it was just amazing. And I literally felt like all the sort of, I don't know how to describe all the molecules in my body sort of expanded and kind of went out into the world. And I could suddenly picture all of my loved ones. Um, my father was really ill at the time. And I, I suddenly felt like I, you know, I could, I could sort of make him stronger in that moment and connect with him and then just sort of all the people I loved and was close to in my life. And it was just this incredible spiritual experience. Um, and I suppose that just added to that sense of just, you know, never waste those those precious moments with your loved ones. Um, so yeah, that, that was my uh, namaste motherfucking epiphany moment. Um, I'm hoping it's going to be quite on. a hard one to beat, Kathleen, I would say. It's got it all, <laughs> that one. So <laughs> It's gone straight up to the top of the Namaste motherfucking league table. It seems undermining wow. of that amazing moment to ask you something as trivial as your favourite joke, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> okay, so I might get into trouble for this, but um, yeah, the, basically I'm crap at remembering jokes, so it's a really simple joke. Um, and it comes courtesy of, uh, if I've got this right, of an American shock jock who was uh, banned from uh, performing in the country because his jokes were so outrageous and he'd managed to offend so many different minorities and uh, one of the newspaper articles covering it had a list of his uh, sort of you know publishable jokes and I sort of looked through them and I was like oh, racist homophobic oh god I can't bear him and then I came to this joke and it just made me laugh out loud <laughs> Um, and I think maybe it's because I kind of relate to it. I've uh, definitely had uh, chubbier periods in my life, uh, definitely when I was in my late teens. Um, and I, I think that's the, the core of the joke. So after all that build up, the joke is, <laughs> how do you get a fat bird into bed? Go on. Piece of cake. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it's so naughty. 
Anyway, I'm allowed to say that as a formerly chubby person. I also was a formerly chubby person. Look at you and I getting having a glow up in our in our fifties, <laughs> aren't we? Great. Um, thank you so much for that. And final question: If you could give one bit of life advice to anybody listening, what would it be? If your dreams don't scare you, they're not big enough. <laughs> That was Kathleen Wyatt. By the way, the film name that we could not remember or I could not remember and you were probably screaming it out when you were listening is, of course, The Mauritanian, which is definitely worth a watch. It's based on the memoir, as you may know, of a Mauritanian man who was held for 14 years without charge in Guantanamo Bay and who went on after being freed to befriend one of his captors. It's a really amazing film. So that is almost it for this week. Every episode, as you know, I pick a thing inspired by my guest that I'm going to do and this week I've decided I'm going to count my little white lies. Now I thought about this, I thought I'll pledge to do it for a week, but then I had a little trial run before I recorded this and then I thought okay I'll aim for a day, but on reflection I think I'm going to aim for a day part or whenever I run out of fingers, whichever is soonest. So um, maybe I'll be counting my lies for an hour. So that is it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review and recommend the show. And we will be back in your feed next Thursday, as always, when I'll be talking to beloved comedian and super quizzer, Lucy Porter. I love every aspect of my job. I'm very lucky, but particularly getting to talk to my early heroes of quiz. Namaste, Motherfuckers was written and presented by me, Callie Beaton, and produced by Mike Hansen and Karusha Dami for Pod People Productions with music by Jake Yap. I'm Callie Beaton. Until next time, motherfuckers. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.